Section 9 of Salt Mines and Castles by Thomas Carr Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Rothschild Jewels, The Goering Collection, Part 2. We were a lengthy cavalcade. Lamont and I took the lead. Steve followed in the stair truck, in running order at last. Behind him trailed five trucks. We were to pick up eight more at Alt Ossie. It wasn't going to be easy to keep such a long convoy in line. If we could only stay together until we got over the pass, the rest of the trip wouldn't be too difficult. We made it over the pass without mishap. From time to time, Lamont looked back to make sure the trucks were still following. He couldn't count them all. They were so strung out, and the road was so winding. But we had instructed the Negro lieutenant to give orders to his men to signal the truck ahead in case of trouble, so we felt reasonably sure that everything was in order. When we reached Fuchsel Sea, we stopped along the lake shore to take count. One after another, eight trucks pulled up. Five were missing. Fifteen minutes passed and still no sign of the laggards. Steve said not to worry, to give them another quarter of an hour. The blue waters of the lake were inviting. Schiller might have composed the opening lines of Willem Tell on this very spot. Es lächert der sie erladet zum Badet. Steve and Lamont decided to have a swim. I dipped my hand in the water. It was icy. While they swam, I kept an eye out for the missing vehicles. Presently, two officers drove by in a jeep. I hailed them and asked if they had seen our trucks. They had. About ten miles back, two trucks had gone off the road. They thought there had been two or three others at the scene of the accident. Lamont and Steve dressed quickly. Steve said he'd go on with the eight trucks and meet us in Salzburg. Then Lamont and I started back toward Bad Ischl. We hadn't gone more than five miles when we came upon three of our vehicles. We signaled them to pull over to the side of the road. At first, we couldn't make out what the drivers were saying. All three talked at once. Finally, we got the story. A driver had taken a curve too fast and had lost control of his truck. The one behind had been following too closely and had also crashed over the side. The first driver had got pinned under his truck and they had had to amputate a finger before he could be extricated. The lieutenant in charge had stayed behind to take care of things. He had told them to try to catch up with the rest of the convoy. By the time they had given us all the details, we realized that they had been drinking, and we guessed that alcohol had also had something to do with the truck going off the road. We would have something to say to the lieutenant when he reached Birchtesgaden. He was new on the job, having replaced Lieutenant Barbosa only two days ago. We were thankful that our precious packing materials had been put in two of the trucks up ahead. Steve was waiting for us in the Mozart plots when we reached Salzburg an hour and a half later with our three trucks in tow. He told the drivers where they could get chow. The three of us went across the river to the Gablebro, the small hotel for transients, for our own supper. The Burschtesgaden operation hadn't begun auspiciously. 
our troubles weren't over. When we pulled into Burstas Garden at eight o'clock, we couldn't find Major Anderson, so we had to fend for ourselves. We managed to put the drivers up for one night in a barracks by the railway station before going on to Unterstein ourselves. The lieutenant in charge of the drivers hadn't turned up when we were ready to go, so I left word that he was to report to me first thing the next morning. While we three felt unhappy over the lack of billeting arrangements for us, we were too tired to think much about it that night. Bed was all that mattered. The officer on duty at the Unterstein rest house said there was an empty room over the entrance hall which we could use until we got permanent quarters. There were three bunks, so we moved in. By contrast, everything started off beautifully the following morning. Major Anderson appeared as we were finishing breakfast. His apologies were profuse, and he did everything he could to make amends. We declined his offer to obtain rooms for us at the elegant Burchtesgadna Hof in town. We wanted to be on the spot. There was plenty of room in the rest house where we would be working, and we could mess with the half-dozen officers billeted in the adjacent barracks. The major introduced us to Edward Peck, the sergeant who had been working on an inventory of the collection. Together we made a tour of the premises. The paintings alone filled 40 rooms. Four rooms and a wide corridor at the end of the ground floor hall were jammed with sculpture. Still another room was piled high with tapestry. Rugs filled two rooms adjoining the one with the tapestries. Two more rooms were given over to empty frames, hundreds of them. There was the gold room, where the objects of great intrinsic value were kept under lock and key. And there were three more rooms crammed with barrels, boxes, and trunks full of porcelain. One very large room was a sea of books and magazines, 11,000 altogether. A small chapel on the premises was overflowing with fine Italian Renaissance furniture. The preliminary survey was discouraging. Although the objects were infinitely more accessible than those at the mine had been, this advantage was largely offset by the fact that they were all loose and would have to be packed individually. Even the porcelain in barrels would have to be repacked. Our first request was for a work party of 12 men, GIs, not PWs. We suggested to the young CO, Major Paul Miller, that he call for volunteers. If possible, we wanted men who might prefer this kind of job to guard duty or other routine work. They could start in on the books while we mapped out our plan of attack on the rest of the things. Steve went off with Major Miller to select the crew, and Lamont and I settled down to discuss other problems with Major Anderson and Sergeant Peck. It was the sergeant's idea that the collection could be packed up one room at a time. He had compiled his inventory with that thought in mind. Unfortunately, we couldn't carry out the evacuation in that order. We explained why his system wouldn't work. Paintings, for example, had to be arranged according to size. Otherwise, we couldn't build loads that would travel safely. Even if we could have packed the pictures as he suggested, one room at a time, it would have meant the loss of valuable truck space. We assured him that in the long run, our plan was the practical one. 
It did, however, involve considerable preliminary work. The first job would be to assemble all of the pictures, and there were a thousand of them, in a series of rooms on one floor of the building. As the sergeant had not quite finished his list, we agreed to devote our energies to the books for the rest of the day. By morning, he would have his inventory completed. Then the pictures could be shifted. Lamont and I wanted to know more about the collection. How did it get to Birch Tescaden in the first place? Major Anderson was the man who could answer our questions. As the war ended, the French reached the town ahead of the Americans. They had it to themselves for about three days and had raised hell generally. Goering's special train bearing the collection had reached Burstesgaden ahead of the French. The collection, having been removed from the Reich Marshal's place, Karenhall, outside Berlin, was to have been stored in an enormous bunker by his hunting lodge up the road. But there hadn't been time. The men in charge of the train got only a part of the things unloaded. Some of them were put in the bunker, others in a villa nearby. Most of the collection was left in the nine cars of the train. The men had been more interested in unloading a stock of champagne and whiskey, which had been brought along in two of the compartments. When the French entered the town, the train was standing on a siding not far from the bunker. They may have made off with a few of the things, but there were no apparent depredations. They peppered it along one side with machine gun fire. However, the damage had been relatively slight. Then the French had cleared out and the train was, so to speak, dumped in Major Anderson's lap, since he was the military government officer with the 101st Airborne Division. Under his supervision, the collection had been transferred from the train, from the bunker, and from the villa to the rest house. Later, he had been instrumental in having it set up as an exhibition. The exhibition had been a great success, perhaps too great a success. He meant that it had attracted so much attention that some of the higher-ups began to worry about the security of the things. Finally, he had received orders that the show was to close, and of course he had complied at once. He said that General Arnold had come to see the exhibition the day after that. We asked if he had let him in. Well, what did we think? But he turned down a three-star general who had come along after hearing that General Arnold had been admitted. The general, he said, was hopping mad. The Major's most interesting experience in connection with the collection was his visit with Frau Goering. He heard that some of the best pictures were in her possession, so he took a run down to Zell am See, where she was staying in a schloss belonging to a South American. He found the castle, he found Emmy, and he found the pictures. There were indeed some of the best pictures, 15 priceless gems of the 15th century Flemish school from the celebrated Renders collection of Brussels. Goering had bought the entire collection of about 30 paintings. We knew that M. Renders was already pressing for the return of his treasures, claiming that he had been forced to sell them to the Reichsmarschall, but that was another story. Frau Goering wept bitterly when the Major took the pictures, protesting that they were her personal property and not that of her husband. 
On the same visit, he had recovered another painting in the collection. Frau Goering's nurse handed over a canvas measuring about 30 inches square. She said Goering had given it to her the last time she saw him. As he placed the package in her hands, he had said, Guard this carefully. It is of great value. If you should ever be in need, you can sell it, and you will not want for anything the rest of your life. The package contained Goering's Vermeer. Major Anderson stayed for lunch. As we walked back from the mess, a command car pulled up in front of the rest house. Bonsal Lafarge and a man in civilian clothes climbed out. I hadn't seen Bonsal for two months. He was a major now. The civilian with him was an old friend of mine, John Walker, chief curator of the National Gallery at Washington and a special advisor to the Roberts Commission. John had flown over to make a brief inspection tour of MFANA activities. Bonsal was serving as his guide. They were on their way to Salzburg and Alassi. Major Anderson proposed a trip to the Eagle's Nest, Hitler's mountain hideout, suggesting that the visitors could look at the Goering pictures that evening. Lamont and I said we had work to do, but we were easily talked out of that. You could see the Eagle's Nest from the rest house. It was perched on top of the highest peak of the great mountain range, which rose sharply from the pine forests across the valley. We crossed to the western side and began a steep ascent. About a thousand feet above the floor of the valley, we came to Ober Salzburg, once a select community of houses belonging to the most exalted members of the Nazi hierarchy. In addition to the Berghof, Hitler's massive chalet, it included a luxurious hotel, the Platterhof, SS barracks, and weekend cottages for Goering and Martin Bormann. The British bombed Ober Salzburg in April 1945. The place was now in ruins. The Berghof was still standing, but gutted by fire and stripped of all removable ornamentation by souvenir hunters. We continued up the winding road carved from the solid rock, through three tunnels at length emerging onto a terrace turnaround around 5,000 feet above Berchtesgaden. The major told us that the road had been built by slave labor. 3,000 men had worked on it for almost three years. The eagle's nest was still 400 feet above. From the turnaround, there were two means of access, an elevator and a footpath. The elevator shaft, hewn out of the mountain itself, was another feat of engineering skill. A broad archway of carved stone marked the entrance. Beside the elevator stood a sign which read, For Field Grade Officers Only, that is, Majors and Above. A sentiment worthy of the builder, Lamont observed, as we took to the footpath. On our steep climb, we wondered what Steve would say to such discrimination. We hadn't long to wait. He made a trip to the eagle's nest a few days later. When stopped by the guard, he looked at him defiantly and asked, What do you take me for, a Nazi? Steve rode up in the elevator. The eagle's nest was devoid of architectural distinction. Built of cut stone, it resembled a small fort two stories high. From the huge octagonal room on the second floor, a room 40 feet across, with windows on five sides, one could look eastward into Austria, 
southward to Italy. A mile below lay the green valleys and blue lakes of Bavaria. They used to say that every time Hitler opened a window, a cloud blew in. The severity of the furnishings matched the bleakness of the exterior. An enormous conference table occupied the center of the room. Before the stone fireplace stood a mammoth sofa and two chairs. A smaller room adjoined the main octagon at a lower level. The heavy carpet was frayed along one side. The caretaker, pointing to the damage, said that in his frequent frenzies, Hitler used to gnaw the carpet, a habit which had earned him the nickname of Der Teppichbeiser, the rug biter. Considering the labor expended on this mountain airy, the place had been little used. The same caretaker told us that Hitler had never stayed there overnight. Daytime conferences had been held there occasionally, but that was all. It was late when we got back to the rest house, so our guests postponed their inspection of the Goering collection until the following morning. That evening, Lamont and I made a second and more thorough survey of the rooms in which the paintings were stacked. We began with a room which contained works of the Dutch, Flemish, German, and French schools. The inventory listed five Rembrandt portraits. One was the artist's sister, another was his son Titus, the third was his wife Saskia, the fourth was the portrait of a bearded old man, and the fifth was the likeness of a man with a turban. We examined the backs of the pictures for markings which might give us clues to previous ownership. Two of the portraits, those of Saskia and of the artist's sister, had belonged to Katz, one of the best-known Dutch dealers. I had been surprised to learn in Paris that Katz, a Jew, had done business with the Nazis. But I was also told that only through acceding to their demands for pictures had he been able to obtain permits for his relatives to leave Holland. According to the information I received, he had succeeded thereby in smuggling 27 members of his family into Switzerland, a revealing commentary on the extent and quality of his paintings. The portrait of Titus had been in the Van Pounwitz collection. Madame Catalina Van Pounwitz, South American-born, but a resident of the Netherlands, I believe, had sold a large part of her collection to Goering. Whether it had been a bona fide or a forced sale was said to be a moot question. Another important Dutch private collection, that of 10K at Almelo, had contributed the man with the turban, and the bearded old man had been bought from the Swiss dealer Wendlin, who had agents in Paris. He had allegedly discovered the painting in Marseille. These five pictures posed an interesting problem in restitution. To whom should they be returned? Who were the rightful owners as of the summer of 1945? At the time we were beginning our work on the Goering collection, definite plans for restitution of works of art were being formulated by the American military government. They were an important part of the general restitution program then being planned by the Reparations, Deliveries, and Restitution Division of the U.S. Group Control Council. Pending the implementation of the program, the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section of the U.S. Forces European Theater 
was the technical custodian of all artworks eventually to be restituted. Bancel Lafarge, who became chief of the section when SHAEF dissolved, had outlined the plans to us on our way back from the Eagle's Nest that afternoon. There were two main categories of works of art slated for prompt restitution to the overrun countries from which they had been taken. The first included all art objects easily identifiable as loot, the great Jewish collections, and the property of other enemies of the state, which had been seized by the Nazis. The second embraced all artworks not readily identifiable as loot, but for which some compensation was known or believed to have been paid by the Nazis. The actual restitution was to be made on a wholesale scale. Works of art were to be returned en bloc to the claimant nations, not to individual claimants of those nations. To expedite this mass evacuation country by country, properly qualified art representatives would be invited to the American-occupied zone, specifically to the central collecting point at Munich, where they could present their claims. Once their claims were substantiated, either by documents in their possession or by records at the collecting point, the representatives would be responsible for the actual removal. We asked Bansel how the various representatives were to be selected. He explained that several of the overrun countries had set up special fine arts commissions. The one in France was called the Commission de Recuperation Artistique. The one in Holland had an unpronounceable name, so it was known simply as CGR. The initials stood for the name translated into French, Commission de Recuperation Générale. And the one in Belgium had such a long name that he couldn't remember it offhand. Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Greece would probably establish similar committees before long. Each commission would choose a representative and submit his name to the MFANA section for approval. Once the names were approved and the necessary military clearances obtained, the representatives could enter the American zone, proceed to Munich, and start to work. Bonsell said that each representative would have to sign a receipt in the name of his country before he could remove any works of art from the collecting point. The receipt would release our government from all further responsibility for the objects concerned, as of the time they left the collecting point. Furthermore, it would contain a clause binding the receiving nation to rectify any mistakes in restitution. For example, if the Dutch representative inadvertently included a painting which later turned out to be the property of a Belgian, then, by the provisions of the receipt, Holland would be obligated to return that painting to Belgium. The chief merit of this system of fine arts restitution lay in the fact that it relieved American personnel of the heavy burden of settling individual claims. From the point of view of our government, this was an extremely important consideration because of the limited number of men available for so formidable an undertaking. And from the point of view of the receiving nations, the system had the advantage of accelerating the recovery of their looted treasures. In the room where Lamont and I had seen the Rembrandts, we found a pair of panels by Boucher, 
the great French master of the 18th century. Each represented an ardent youth making amorous advances to a coy but half-protesting maiden in a rustic setting. They were appropriately entitled Seduction and were said to have been painted for the boudoir of Madame la Pompadour. According to the inventory, the panels had been bought from Wendland, the dealer of Paris and Lucerne. These slightly prurient canvases flanked one of the most beautiful 15th-century Flemish paintings I had ever seen, The Mystic Marriage of St. Catherine by Gerard David. The Madonna with the child on her lap was portrayed against a landscape background. St. Catherine, kneeling at her right, dressed in russet velvet. Round about were grouped five other female saints, each richly gowned in a different color. It was not a large composition, measuring only about 25 inches square, but it possessed the dignity and monumentality of a great altarpiece. The authenticity of its sentiment put to shame the facile virtuosity of the two bouchers which stood on either side. The second room we visited that evening contained an equally miscellaneous assortment of pictures. Here the canvases were even more varied in size. A Dutch interior by Peter de Hoosh, a view of the Piazza San Marco by Canaletto, and two Corbet landscapes were lined up along one wall. The de Hoosh, an exceptionally fine example of the work of this 17th century master, was listed in the inventory as having belonged to Baron Edouard de Rothschild of Paris. The Corbets were something of a rarity, as Goering had few French paintings of the 19th century. One of the landscapes, a winter scene, was an important work, signed and dated 1869. The inventory did not indicate from whom it had been acquired. In one corner stood a full-length portrait of the Duke of Richmond by Van Dyck. Our list stated that it had come from the Katz collection. Beside it was a brilliant landscape by Rubens. There were perhaps ten other pictures in the room, among them several nondescript panels which appeared to be by an artist of the 15th century Florentine school, a portrait by the 16th century German master Bernard Striegel, a fête champêtre by Lecrette, and two or three seascapes of the 17th-century Dutch school. Lamont and I had been looking at this assemblage for some little time before we noticed an unframed canvas standing on the washbasin by the window. The upper edge of the picture leaned against the wall mirror at an angle, which made it difficult to get a good look at the composition from where we stood. Closer inspection revealed the subject to be Christ and the Woman Taken in Adultery. I studied it for a few minutes and was still puzzled. Turning to Lamont, I asked, What do you make of this? I can't even place it as to school, let alone guess the artist. Unless I am very much mistaken, he said slowly, that is the famous Göring Vermeer. You're crazy, I said. Why, I could paint something which would look more like a Vermeer than that. We consulted the inventory. Lamont was right. A few lines below the listing of the Rubens landscape, a picture I had just been admiring in another part of the room, appeared the entry, Vermeer, Jan, 
The Adulteress. Canvas, 90 centimeters by 96 centimeters. The subject coincided with that of the picture on the wash basin. The measurements were identical. I tried to visualize the picture properly framed, properly lighted, and hanging in a richly furnished room. But still, I couldn't conceive how such trappings could blind one to the flat greens and blues, the lack of subtlety in the modeling of the flesh tones, the absence of that convincing rendering of the total visual effect which Vermeer had so completely mastered. Who attributed this painting to Vermeer, I asked. I don't know, said Lamont, but it is related stylistically to the Vermeer in the Boyman's Museum at Rotterdam, the Christ at Emmaus. So this was the painting Hoffer was talking about. This was the painting Goering had given the nurse, one of the notorious Van Meegeren fakes. Lamont's reference to the Boyman's Vermeer called to mind the great furor in the art world nearly a decade ago when that picture had turned up in the art market. Dr. Bredius, the famous connoisseur of Dutch painting, discovered the picture in Paris in 1936. He was convinced that it was a hitherto unknown work by Vermeer, the rarest of all Dutch masters. The subject matter was of special interest to Dr. Bredius, for the only other Vermeer which dealt with a religious theme was the one in the National Gallery at Edinburgh. The past history of the picture was as reassuring as that of many another accepted old master. Dr. Bredius learned that it had belonged to a Dutch family. One of the daughters had married a Frenchman in the middle 80s. The picture had been a wedding present, and she had taken it with her to Paris. But their house had been too small for such a large painting. It was four feet high and nearly square, so the canvas had been relegated to the attic. According to the story, they hadn't known that it was particularly valuable, or they might have sold it. In any case, the picture remained in the attic until the couple died. It had come to light again when the house was being dismantled. Through Dr. Bredius, the Boyman's Museum had become interested in the picture. Other experts were called in. A few questioned it, but the majority accepted it as a Vimir. In 1937, the directors of the Boyman's Museum purchased the Christ at Emmaus for the staggering price of $375,000. Unknown to the outside world, several more Vimirs were discovered during the war years. All were of religious subjects. One was bought at a fantastic price by Van Boeningen, the great private collector of Rotterdam, another by the Nazi-controlled Dutch government for an exorbitant sum, and a third by Hermann Goering. Though the Reich Marshal did not pay cash for his Vermeer, the price was high. He traded 137 pictures from his collection. According to Hoffer, his advisor and agent, the paintings he gave in exchange were all of high quality. The final chapter in the story of these newly found Vermeers is one of the most interesting in the annals of the art world. At the close of the war, Dr. Van Gelder, the director of the Mauritius, the museum at The Hague, and other Dutch art authorities began an official investigation, 
It was curious that so many lost Vermeers had come to light in such a short space of time. It was recalled that in 1942, an artist named Van Meegeren had delivered a million guilders to a Dutch bank for credit to his account. The money was in thousand guilder notes, which the Germans had ordered withdrawn from circulation at that time. The artist was not known to be a man of means, and his mediocre talents as a painter could not have enabled him to amass such a fortune. Van Meegeren was questioned and finally admitted that he had painted the Christ at Emmaus and the other lately discovered Vermeers. Even after he had made a full confession, there were certain Dutch critics who doubted the truth of his statements. This nettled Van Meegeren, and he promptly offered to demonstrate his prowess. His choice of subject might have been symbolic, Jesus confounding the doctors. It took him two months to finish the picture. The work was done in the presence of several witnesses. He painted entirely from memory, using no models. In the course of the demonstration, he explained the ingenious methods he had used to defraud the experts. In the first place, his compositions were original, but painted in the style of Vermeer. In the second, he used old canvas and only the pigments known to the Dutch masters of the 17th century. It had not been difficult to pick up at auctions old paintings of little value. It was not always necessary to remove the existing pictures. He frequently adapted portions of them to his own compositions, or, conversely, rearranged his to take advantage of part of an old picture. He was scrupulously careful to avoid modern zinc white and used only lead white, which had been employed by the artists of the 17th century. He took equal precautions with his other colors, using ground lapis lazuli and cochineal for his blues and reds. He had obtained these at great expense from abroad. At the time I was evacuating the Goering pictures, the Dutch government was completing its investigation of Van Meegeren's activities. Subsequently, the Ministry of Education, Arts and Sciences publicly announced its findings, confirming the fact that Henrik Van Meegeren was the author of the celebrated picture in the Boymans Museum and also of other forgeries done so marvelously that the best art experts pronounced them genuine. Bancel Lafarge and John Walker returned the following morning. Although it was Sunday, our crew of GIs had reported for work at 7.30 and under Steve's supervision continued to pack books. Some 8,000 volumes remained to be placed in cases before they could be loaded onto the trucks. While this work was in progress, Lamont and I made a tour of the pictures with our guests. We looked again at the rooms we had visited the night before, singling out the paintings we thought would be of greatest interest to them, such as the best of the Dutch and Flemish masters, the Cranachs, the 18th century French pictures, and the finest sculptures. We concluded the tour at noon. Our visitors had to get started on their way to the mine at Old Ossie. After lunch, Lamont joined the crew at work on the books, while I went in search of Sergeant Peck. We had explained to him that all of the paintings would have to be numbered before we could prepare them for loading. The sergeant had agreed, but
but I was not certain that he altogether understood why we were so insistent on this point. I found Peck in his room at the end of the south wing of the rest house. As usual, he was working on the inventory. He was a serious, scholarly fellow. Before entering the Army, he had been an art teacher at an Ohio college, so his present assignment was very much to his liking. He had done a remarkably fine job on the inventory. It was a detailed 70-page document giving the title of each picture, the name of the artist, the dimensions of the canvas, and where known, the name of the collection from which it had been acquired. I told him that we hoped to get started on the pictures the next morning. We would arrange them in rooms on the second floor of the center section of the building. Those rooms were the ones most accessible to the door leading to our loading platform. We would want him to be responsible for checking off each picture as it was carried onto the truck. Since there were more than a thousand paintings in the inventory, there was only one practical way this checking could be done. By going through all the rooms and numbering each picture, setting down the corresponding number on the correct entry in the inventory. I asked if he could spare the time to help me with the numbering that afternoon. He agreed, so, armed with the inventory and some chalk, we began with the rooms on the second floor. By mid-afternoon, we had finished marking 200 pictures. Lamont could start with these the next forenoon. They would keep him busy until we had numbered an additional batch. At three, Steve and I drove over to Brigade Headquarters to make arrangements for escort vehicles. We expected to have our first convoy ready to leave for Munich the following afternoon. It was only a 90-mile run, Audubon all the way, so two jeeps would suffice. End of section 9